Hey folks, and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, your co-host. I'm so happy that you're here with us today. We've got some great guests, two threes, a mother and a daughter. We've never had a mother and a daughter on the show together, and they are both type threes. Really interesting. Talking about Nancy Beach and Samantha Beach Kylie. Nancy previously served as the program director at Willow Creek Community Church, and she now serves as a leadership coach with the Slingshot Group. Samantha is a writer and performer working at the intersection of art and faith. They both bring a lot to the table today. Their brand new book is called Next Sunday, an honest dialogue about the future of the church. I know you're going to love this episode. Really, really interesting. Nancy and Ian go way back, so there's a lot of fun things to talk about today. Both type threes. Glad you're here, folks. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. And now, here's the host of our show, Ian Crumb. Enneagram 3's Nancy and Samantha Beach, authors of the new book, Next Sunday, an honest dialogue about future of church, which dropped on June 22nd. Welcome to Typology. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Nancy, we have a little bit of history. We've known each other for, gosh, I'm going to say we probably met for the first time 25 years ago, 20 years ago. I think so. Yep. You were out east, and I was leading the arts ministry in in a church in Chicago, and I was out there, and we were co-teaching at a workshop or something, and then you came, you were gracious enough to come and do some work at one of our arts conferences. Man, and I have such fond memories of that. It was really, really a wonderful experience. And I had just written my first book, Chasing Francis, and I remember that era as being the beginning of having a more broader ministry beyond my local setting. And and so I always have a little bit of gratitude for you for helping make that possible. So Samantha, I want to know all about you. We've not met and you are an Enneagram 3. Mom is an Enneagram 3. This is the first time, first time in 300 <laughs> shows. We've done 300 shows. This is the first time we've had a mother-daughter combination, I believe. And the first time We've ever had two threes who are a mother and daughter on the show. So this is going to be great. Samantha, tell us about yourself and also a little bit about your history with the Enneagram. Sure. Well, I I just moved actually to Raleigh, North Carolina. So that's where we're talking to you from. I moved here for a new ministry role at a church here. But I came to ministry through the theater door, which was a bit unconventional, discovered a passion for the arts at a young age. And that took me out into pursuing a career in entertainment and then kept kind of getting pulled back into church stuff, usually around the holidays when they wanted to do something a little more creative and eventually felt like that was really where I was being called. And my mom has a long legacy there. And so that was part of it. And as a three, I wrestled with, you know, did I want to do my own thing? Could I ever live up to to what my mom was able to achieve in that space. How could I make this my own? But yeah, so so I'm excited to be in this new chapter and discovered the Enneagram probably f- six or seven years ago. My mom was getting more into it, started passing me some books. I think she knew that I was a three before I did, but let me kind of come to that realization myself. 
Mm. And uh, it's been a really helpful tool for me as a leader and mm. wife and mom and friend. Can you drill down a little bit more into that? Like, how has it helped you as a mom, as a leader, as a woman in the arts? It's really helped me in my relationships. I, I think back to some of my collaborations. My sister and I, we, we have kind of a family business going. My sister and I actually did a show together when we would run into collaborative issues. It was helpful to go, you know, I think this is coming from some of these tendencies that I have as a three and she's a four. So primarily the issue we would have would be she wanted authenticity in all things and I wanted to spin the story of how things went. But it's also been helpful for me in my marriage, um, just giving me language and tools and helping move the attention away from this is just how I am or this is just how you are. But here's what that that's playing out in an unhealthy way versus this could look a little bit healthier. Mm. What's your partner's type? He's a seven, which has been very healthy for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Two very assertive types in the same house. And he probably gets you periodically to slow down, to stop being so goal-oriented and focused, and just to have some fun. You know, it's true. He's introduced me to the beauty of unstructured time. That's his favorite thing. And now it's becoming one of my favorite mm. things, and I never would have <laughs> wow, and, that's great. And of course, you're teaching him how to focus and have, you know, sort of a singular objective and to complete it, nail it, you know, before it, right? Is yeah. this, does this sound right? Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> Absolutely. When, when they were dating, I told Samantha, this probably wasn't very nice, but I said, you know, dating a seven and being married to a seven are going to be two really different things. I said, now. Blast. I said, when it's time for taxes or the gutters to be cleaned or whatever, tell me how you like being married to a seven. So yeah. And my husband, her dad is a five. So he brings this structure and organization. And, you know, wow. my husband, Warren says that's the genius. The five is simply the genius. And so, yeah, it's an interesting family combination we have going on. Wow. Nancy, remind people again, who you are, same question as Samantha, and how it is that you came into the Enneagram world and what it's meant to you. Well, somewhat similar to Samantha, I started out with a path towards the arts. My degree was in radio and television, and I really wanted to go out to LA and be a producer of film or television. And then I got sidetracked somewhere along the way and was presented with a unique opportunity to lead an arts ministry. I didn't even know what that was. Um, actually to develop one at Willow Creek in Chicago. And this was a new position they were conceiving of. I was in my 20s. I honestly thought like you were a big, huge loser if you did the arts in the church. I thought that was definitely not the way to go. And that was very arrogant of me. And I just sensed the Holy Spirit saying, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. And I have an adventure for you if you'll just trust me. So for 20 years, I led the arts ministry in that church and also became a teaching pastor while I was there. Um, I resigned in 2010 and became, over time, after a few side things, um, became a leadership coach, which is mostly what I'm doing now, along with some speaking and teaching. And I love coaching mostly in cohorts, um, small groups of 10 to 12 people. That's my favorite space. I just love building community and seeing the connections and learning from one another in a small group of people. Mm. So what was it like for you, Nancy, to discover you were a three? Well, it, 
you know, like a lot of people would say, when you learn this as an adult, you look back and so much makes sense. Um, I was thinking about how when I was in third grade, I had so many stomach aches and it my pediatrician finally asked my parents to take me to uh, Memorial Hospital or Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago for tests. And of course, it turned out it was all stress related, like I wasn't going to win the spelling bee or I wasn't going to get good enough grades. The difference, though, for me as a little three is that my parents were not putting that pressure on me. I know that's true for a lot of threes that they felt they would only be loved if they performed. This was my own internal driver and standards. And I really don't know where it came from because my siblings were not that way, but I was just really hard on myself. And, uh, you know, as I was then raising Samantha and I started to see some of the same tendencies in her perfectionism, worry, always having to be the best, being competitive and all of that. The joke in our family became, we literally, my husband and I offered her money if she would get a B in school because, you know, all her friends were getting rewarded if they would get good grades. And she, she was the only one that was encouraged to drop a grade and would never do it. She was just so driven. And my fear was that like me, she would set these high standards and never feel like she was enough uh, of a value just for herself, just being. Um, So that was the hard parenting challenge with her. Hmm. Samantha, what was it like to have a mom who was a three like you? And what's it like now? Well, I'm grateful that I have a mom who I think is a very healthy three. And so I did have those messages like her paying me to get a B or um, an opportunity I had to, to join a varsity basketball team with a coach I was kind of scared of. And I really enjoyed the team I was on at the time. And she and my dad were kind of like, you don't have to do that. You don't have to take that opportunity just because it's offered to you. And so they, they took these moments, opportunities to kind of subvert the achiever in me, the drive in me and, and make me see that I could just be happy where I was. And I'm grateful for that. I think as an adult, it's been interesting um, as my mom and I work now in a lot of the same spaces and get to collaborate, to give feedback, to both really push to make something the very best that it can be, um, I think is something that we share and also probably means we put in a few more hours than maybe we need to on certain projects and things like that. But I'm grateful because I think she's helped me see how I can live with these tendencies in a way that doesn't totally co-opt my relationships and my life. And she's modeled that for me in a way that I'm grateful for. Thanks, honey. <laughs> that's a really great insight because I think actually that's true for every type. When their personality takes over or hijacks them, it actually does not only co-opt, it co-ops everybody, right? It takes mm. everybody hostage, right? It trains everybody to relate to them in a particular way. Right. And so I think that's a, a wonderful insight on your part. But you just mentioned that your mom is a healthy three. I want to know what you think a healthy three is. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. It's a great question. Well, you know, she, I'm watched her. I'm watching her now in a season where she's not up front as much as she once was. And that's been really refreshing to see how she's finding joy in these mentoring relationships that are more private and, and no less meaningful, but watching her find meaning and joy in places that aren't as loud or, you know, widely celebrated has been impressive to me. And then in the past few years, she's 
you know, we had an event a few years ago where I watched her take a brave step and we can share more about this, but take a brave step and not really care what other people were going to think of her. And that was an example to me of what being a healthy three could look like that. Sometimes there are things that are more important than your image, which is hard for me to remember Mm. sometimes. Mm. How does that reinforce like where you want to move to in health as a type three? Yeah, it definitely does. I think as a young three on kind of the outset of my career, the image thing just can really get in my way. And so I try to hold on to remembering what it's like to watch my mom live into her deepest values, which is much closer to who she is than kind of the mask that can be tempting to put on. That's good. It's interesting. uh, Samantha has just become an associate pastor at a church. And so I'm partly here to watch my granddaughter and partly here because she preached her first full message uh, to this church on Sunday. And I, we can talk about the Enneagram so naturally with each other because I knew the voices in her head. And the voices in her mm-hmm. head were, you know, this is my first one. What if they regret that they hired me? What if they think, oh, this was a terrible move? What if I, she, she, they followed the lectionary in her church. So she was given an assigned scripture and it was of course about hell. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> lucky you, lucky you. So all of that was going on in her and, you know, she's aware of it. I think that's the first step and Mm. she sees it and she's trying to replace those voices in her head with healthy voices. But as a three now in my sixties, I would say I've learned that this is going to be my lifelong thing. I mean, they're never going to completely disappear. It's more about minimizing them, replacing them as best I can with the truth of the value of who I am outside of what I do. Um, But it'll be my, my cross to bear until heaven, I think. And that that's okay. I feel like I'm growing. And so you just try to get a little bit healthier every week and (laughs) defeat those voices. Yeah. Yeah. Or, Or like you said, recognizing it for what it is. Yeah. And I do think it's hard because of, um, social media. I think Mm. management is magnified. You know, she said when I, took a bold step about four years ago now that I didn't care what people thought. That's not accurate. I did care, but I learned a big lesson, which was what strangers say about me or think about me um, at the end of the day doesn't matter. And I have to hold on to what I know is true and what people who know me and love me know is true. But she helped me hugely with that. Um, She also deleted a lot of things, so I wouldn't read it. But, you know, I think for threes, maybe we should just not even look at social media. (laughs) So interesting you say that because I, I can think of two people right off the top of my head, quite well known, who are threes. And sometimes I see their Instagram posts and I just want to call them and go, oh, dude, stop, stop. <laughs> because it, it, it's just the self-marketing it is so yeah. shameless, but I think it's unconscious, you know, and I'm, I'm like, oh, dude, can I help you? Don't do that, you know, because it. If you think it's fooling a ton of people, it's really not. It's kind of gross. But Nancy, I want everyone to know this about you because you're being modest. Back when you took over the arts role, the head of arts at at Willow, first of all, I don't think there was another pastor in the country who had that title, number one, okay? I mean, it was at least quite innovative and different. And you as a pioneer blew that wide open in the church. I just want everyone to know that. Like you, 
as a speaker, as a name back in the 80s, 90s, were really big. Like it was a big deal. Now, I just want people to know that because I'm about to say something else. And that is, I have a friend here, and, and people know that I'm always talking about being in a recovery community. And I've got a friend of mine who is an older guy who was also very, very well known, but for something else, right? And he's a, he's a three, and the name of the group, I think the whole group is threes. Then everybody in the group, by the way, is kind of celebrity. Okay. Okay. But they're older. And so the name of the group is PIP, which is previously important people. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's great. And they're like, they're all in their 60s and 70s. They were famous authors, famous musicians, blah, 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 blah. Previously important people. And in a weird way, as threes, I think there is a moment, and you know, I'm a four with a wicked strong three-way, right? Yeah. And I always think about Thomas Merton, who was probably a well, a four with a very strong five wing, who mm-hmm. used to talk about the importance of for him in the spiritual life of intentionally pursuing irrelevance. Mm. Yes. Yeah, you know, we're supposed to go to the advice for threes is to serve somewhere anonymously, don't lead it, just show up and do something, you set up chairs, whatever. And here's the hardest part, don't talk about it later. You know, like, oh yeah, when I was down at the homeless shelter last week, blah, blah, blah. Just shut up and do some quiet acts of service. And that's the healthiest thing for a three who wants so much to be out front and to be applauded. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and I think for you, Samantha, one of the hardest things is because you're you're more, in many ways, ensconced in culture, contemporary culture, than your mom is. I mean, if that's that's my experience with my children, and I'm in my sixties. I think the big message that young people get today, and this isn't original to me, but it's hurry up and matter. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like just hurry up and matter. And mm. I think that's horrible for a three, isn't it? <laughs> for sure. She for was sure. a wreck when she was about to turn 30 because she had all these ideas of what she would have accomplished by then. You know? Yeah. Those mm. 30 under 30 lists, you feel like a failure for not being on them. But, you know, honestly, mm. this move I just made, I think was a healthy one because I was kind of straddling like a freelance career or really giving my whole time to, to one ministry role in a place with a people. And that's kind of the direction I went. And I think for me, at least right now, just going deep rather than going wide is gonna, I hope, help me balance that feeling like you're not worth anything if there aren't thousands of people listening to what you have to say. So I'm hope I'm hopeful, but yeah, that's- This is Leo Skeppy, and this is your official invitation to listen to my podcast, Aware and Aggravated. I discuss self-improvement beyond the surface level. I break things down psychologically, spiritually, and emotionally with some of the most unique and refreshing perspectives that I've ever found. And sharing them has changed so many people's lives already just from listening. I speak realistically with brutal honesty because that's what gives people the boost they need. A boost in confidence, energy, discipline, and overall acceptance and love for yourself. Everything is about to get better. So subscribe today, Aware and Aggravated. Totally the message we get. Hurry up and matter. Okay, I want to talk about your your new book. Next Sunday, 
an honest dialogue about the future of church, which dropped on June 22nd. I love this title. I'm eager to get into it. But the first thing I want to ask you is, what is it like for two threes to co-author a book? Well, the first thing we decided was co-author does not mean we're going to craft sentences together. We did not write it together Mm -hmm. in that. We came up with seven distinctives that we think are important for the future of the church. And we each wrote a chapter on each of the seven distinctives. Mm -hmm. And then we would share our chapters and give each other feedback. But it was not like collaborating in the traditional sense of co-writing. Samantha? (laughs) I wrestled with the experience and authority that my mom was bringing to this topic and how could I find a voice that felt true. And I had some drafts that I think didn't sound like me where I was trying, I was pretending to know more than I did. And I think the best, my best work in the book is when I was able to sink back into an open handedness of I'm not there yet, or I don't know yet. And that's okay. But I wrestled with that as almost my competitive side coming out with like, how could I have equal billing with my mom who's had 25 years of experience in ministry? Well, and ironically, and I'm not Mm -hmm. saying this to be falsely humble. She's a better writer than I am. She's a naturally gifted writer. So I felt like I had some good content to offer, but the craft of writing, I'm actually quite in awe of Samantha's skills. So she would send me her chapters and I would say, I hope everybody just skips my chapters and reads your chapters, you know? So we had this thing going on where both of us were dealing with some of it, but overall I have to say it was a very joyful process. It it really, people are looking like, is this like a point counterpoint where you disagree a lot? And we couldn't find a whole lot that we disagreed on. Mm. So that sort of leads me to a question that does have some bearing on the book and it's about the generational differences Right. Like Mm -hmm. from your perspective, Nancy, what was your experience like 30 years ago in a church where you were the first ordained women pastor there? Right. What was it like to be Mm -hmm. a three 30 years ago? How do you think it's different today for a woman three to be in the world? Do you think there's a difference? Uh, Yes. I'm coaching a lot of remarkable young women right now who remind me a lot of Samantha, women in their early 30s and early 40s. And I'm actually filled with a lot of hope for for the contribution these women are going to make. But I think there's some major differences, more in terms of the way we go about the church gathering. I mean, that's been changing for the last few decades. But I believe that there are some things that we should hold on to, some core values that my generation, I think, paid attention to. And I don't want to see us throw everything out and not hold on to a few of those core values. So that's what I was sort of, you know, advocating for. At the same time, learning from being curious and listening to what the next generation is saying about church. And I think that's one of the best things Samantha brought to this. She has many friends she cares deeply about outside of the church. And she was really a voice for them as she was writing as well. You know, what would matter to them about church? Mm. All right, you guys, let's talk about the book next Sunday, an honest dialogue about the future of church. All right, give me the background. Why did you decide to write it? And come on, tell me what the future of the church is. (laughs) Well, it's a pretty audacious thing (laughs) to think that we would even know and try to tackle that subject. We gave it our best shot. But 
You know, I, I think as we looked at some of the issues in the church, first of all, we're both aware and we both experienced our own share of church pain. And I think a lot of people, a lot of Christians actually have given up on the church. And then with COVID, that just exacerbated everything. And everybody's wondering, will some of those people come back? You know, what what has happened? So we were writing during COVID. And that, you know, was a certainly a factor as, as we wrote together. We both wanted to see the church own and lament the ways in which we have we have hurt people. And I think mm-hmm. we have rushed through not paying attention to the kind of true lament that scripture would call us to in the ways we've excluded certain people groups and sometimes women and certainly racial exclusion, LGBTQ community, all of that. And so that was really heavy on our heart as we wrote. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we don't claim to have a crystal ball and COVID, you know, underscored that even further. But we talk about seven different topics that we believe that a church is going to flourish in the years to come should be talking about that these are these are the things that are coming up the most for us and we hope that you know we have a limited perspective as to white women raised in a very specific church context but we we did witness a lot of breakdowns in conversations between folks in my mom's generation and their adult children and both parties leaving the church maybe for different reasons and we hoped that this would be a tool for dialogue or bringing them back to the table together mm. so in brief, and I know this is complicated, and I, as a an Episcopal priest, still as a volunteer in a parish, I can probably riff on this as well. But from your perspective, why are so many people leaving the church? <sighs> the big question. I'll take a stab, and then you can add what you have to. And I don't claim to speak for all millennials. What I'm witnessing among my friends who have grown up with the internet, and that has meant growing up with much greater awareness than maybe previous generations got to have to some of the inequities in our world and and being able to listen to new voices that we have historically silenced. Lots of institutions are undergoing reckonings of some kind. We're seeing this Mm. all across society around all the isms, right? Racism, sexism, homophobia, all these things. And, And I think my friend's my friends, that's all I can speak for, just want to know, is the church having these conversations too? And when it feels mm. like the church is silent on some of these issues, then it then it feels like we don't have anything to say to the like deepest questions that people are asking about how we can feel a sense of unity again as humans. And so I think people are leaving the church because either they've become so politicized in one direction that it doesn't feel like it represents Jesus who is humble at all, or they're just not talking about it. I don't even know which is worse. (laughs) Yeah. And we each wrote a chapter as well. You know, sometimes when people think about the church, all they think about is the Sunday gathering or the week, the weekend gathering. We did a whole chapter about the gathering, recognizing it's only one part of a church experience. Mm -hmm. But I think people have abandoned that. And as I think about it with online services now that had to happen during COVID and do serve a purpose, I do think what's happened is that people can get the content they're looking for with a touch of a button on Sunday morning, comfortable in their home. The question we should ask is what would make a person, what would compel you to want to get in the car or take a walk down to the local church? It's not going to be driven by content, in my opinion. It's not going to be because there's some 
message because you could get that somewhere else or even some brand of worship. I think that's where the texture of community is so vital. There's something different about confessing sins together. There's something different about being silent together, about singing together, about even learning together in a room side by side. And then there's something about obviously the conversation before and after that can happen, the connection between people. And the younger generation actually, we believe, is longing for something like that. Um, There's no other institution quite like it in our world where people across age barriers and racial barriers and all kinds of barriers can actually get to know each other and show up in in some way because of one common purpose, which is to try to somehow sense the presence of God in that place. And so we write about that. You know, we took some risks in the book, Ian, honestly, we, we wrote as honestly and vulnerably as we could, knowing that we are in a politically very divisive time in the church and people get labeled really quickly. And as Enneagram threes, that was actually one of the biggest risks we took. And we said, you know what, we're going to write honestly and authentically, and we're going to see, and there's probably going to be some people who don't appreciate Mm -hmm. this book and that's okay. But as Sam said, we offered it just as a way to stir up dialogue. Um, Can't we talk about these things without getting so angry? Can't we just say, well, what I'm curious, how do you look at it? And, and, take another lens. Um, so that, that was our hope. Mm. Yeah. You know, one of the things I hear, you know, in Nashville is a funny place, right? Because we have tons of young folks, tons of young folks that come from, for lack of a better phrase, conservative, evangelical church backgrounds as kids. You know what I mean? Mm. And as they've gotten older, there's a level of cynicism and disillusionment and one of the reasons is that they see the church of their youth and their parents' lives and churches, mm. et cetera, embracing, I hate to say it, nationalistic Christianity and taking points of view that seem completely yeah. contrary to the gospel. And that's part of the mm. reason they've run for the hills. Like, I don't want anything to do with that anymore. Is that your experience? Yes, 100%. Absolutely. And I also think this aspect of churches, which can happen even in small churches, of the celebrity kind of platform that we've created. And again, this is where I look back and I say, as a Mm. three, that was dangerous for me to end up in a large church that had a massive influence, really a global influence. Try to walk humbly with your God when people think you're all that is is really damaging in some ways. And so now, you know, I, I seek to be, as Sam said, you know, in more private, quiet settings, because I just think it's right for my heart. I don't have to worry so much about managing my image and my strength finder woo, you know, trying to win people over all the time. That's just kind of dangerous for me. And I think, unfortunately, some of the larger evangelical churches became platforms for little mini celebrities. And then there were people in the seats as well, and they have to take responsibility for their part in this, treating those people as sort of other than. And then we wonder why a sense of entitlement got introduced and and some have really fallen off the rails. So I think for all those reasons, unfortunately, the young people, I'm so embarrassed by the things they've seen you know, in the church. And we have so much work to do to 
change the perspective that people have about church, and it's only going to happen slowly. And that's really sad to me, what what her generation mm-hmm. has witnessed. Samantha, can you respond to what I just said, too, about why younger folks are leaving as a result of seeing? Uh, part of it is the politicization of church. Yeah. And, and just yeah. disappointment that their parents say things like, Jesus is love. And they might also say, build the wall. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Completely contradictory and often delivered through a vehicle that has no room for doubt, questioning, mystery, complexity, mm-hmm. nuance. I mean, it just feels like uh, Jamar Tisby tweeted last week. He's a, a voice, leading voice, especially around race in the church. And he said, so are white evangelicals just people with no questions? And I think that's wow. how it has started to feel sometimes. And I think that's what young people are picking up. And then we go just as strong with our heels in the sand the other way. Well, then the church has nothing to offer. Mm. And Brian McLaren, who's another writer I love, talks about like this perplexity stage we all reach where we develop this cynicism and then what might lie beyond it, he calls a stage called harmony, where love becomes something we we find faith expressed through love, not faith expressed through beliefs. But I'm finding it harder and harder for people to push through perplexity to that stage called harmony because we just don't want anything to do with our parents' faith, a lot of people. And, you know, as a part of what I love about my mom's story is that she's continued to evolve. And she shares this in the book that, and I think it's especially hard as a three to admit that maybe you see things differently now, but we don't tell that story enough. I mean, I think we have people who are convinced they've always been right and, they, and they've always known the answer. And my mom's someone who around some of these more sensitive issues has reevaluated you know, after walking with God for many, many years, God, maybe I could reinterpret this, you know, in her sixties. I find it admirable. Yeah. You know, there's another way of of framing out what you're saying. And I think it it looks like this, not original to me. I can't remember if it was Foucault or someone like that, you know, in your initial stage in the world of faith, right? You live inside a thesis, right? You have a thesis, a worldview, a theology, right? And then you have this crisis moment where you move into antithesis. It's like, now I, I can't stand all that stuff. I'm, I'm disillusioned. Mm-hmm. I'm angry. I'm this, I'm that. I'm completely throwing it out. And then hopefully the next stage in your journey is synthesis, where yeah. you are able to appreciate the best of what you had and to then also welcome the best of the new and find some kind of not black or white, but a more of a gray place, right? That is is sort of, a, I think, is really healthy. Yes, absolutely. That's good. Can I ask a question, Ian? I always say Sunday morning is a meeting in churches 24-7. I love what you said earlier, and I love that this is coming from two threes as well. But for someone who's really exhausted specifically with the megachurch and the expression of the megachurch, that feels so event-centered. What are some good shifts that you're seeing with your experience and your research that's happening from people that are moving away from what we're talking about that is sort of an unhealthy expression of the church, but not going the extreme opposite like Ian was just saying, but finding a middle ground where you're kind of holding these two things in tension and and honoring the good in both? 
You know, it's almost a cliche now that a lot of kids who grew up in the mega church, or not just kids, people my age as well, are finding their ways to smaller community churches, to liturgical churches. That that just seems to be quite common. I find that really interesting. And I am encouraged by the fact that some churches are rethinking ways to connect people. So, for example, I'm a part of Soul City Church in downtown Chicago, and they've used the Alpha series, which a lot of churches have used. And that's really not the point. The point, though, is I think one of the reasons it's become such a great event is because it has food and these people come together for a meal and then they talk about the curriculum, whatever it might be. I Mm. think of a church I know up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, that every Sunday now has a breakfast first and they actually sit at tables for the worship as well. And they have a connection time with the people at their table. I I think we've got to find what people are so lonely. We really are lonely and isolated and the internet's making that worse. And so anything churches can do to connect people. And then we have a whole chapter that we believe very strongly about, which is about outreach. You know, your your community that you're in, whatever community you find yourself in, there should be something different about that community because of the church's presence. And if there isn't, then Mm. what what are we about? My Mm. husband is a huge advocate for this, going in and first doing an assessment and finding partners in the community who are doing good work, whatever the biggest needs are in your community. And that's a, you know, Monday through Saturday thing. That's not a, not just a Sunday thing. And uh, Samantha was a part of a church when she was living in Austin that, what was the first weekend you went? It was, they took a week off. Oh, Easter. Yeah. They used to not even have an Easter service. They would just go out and serve food to unhoused people living under the bridge. But I think that's the kind, when I've made invitations to my friends, they never want to come on a Sunday morning, but when I've invited them to come serve because we were short on people or we needed folks to show up for a serving initiative. Um, yeah. That's when people say yes. And so Ooh, I, I, and I also think that's, that's that shift from faith expressed through beliefs to faith expressed through love is that we can all sit around and argue about these doctrinal things, or we can show up and, and ask people and need what they need and get and serve together. And I think that's the way forward for churches. Yes. Mm. Oof. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I was just writing about this yesterday, that one of the problems, I think, with this called modern Christian theology is that we've become a belief-based religion versus a practice-based religion. Mm-hmm. And yes. that's a big problem. You know, if all that's required to become or to be a Christian is to give assent to a group of theological propositions— that's a ridiculously low bar, <laughs> right? Yeah. All I got to do is believe certain things and I'm all good, you know, versus yeah. a practice-based community or individual, it seems to me is more aligned with what uh, the scriptures sort of describe. And so I'm, I'm so thrilled about this book. Next Sunday, people, that's the name of the book. An Honest Dialogue About the Future of the Church by Nancy and Samantha Beach, two Enneagram threes, one of whom, by the way, Nancy is married to a five, and I'm fascinated that her husband was saying we need to do community research before (laughs) 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 as we begin to think about, you know, what the church is supposed to be in the world. I just I just about went, well, okay, there's that, you know. (laughs) 
There you go. <laughs> so we know you can get this at, at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all those great places. Tell us about the website for the book and where people can learn more about the two of you. We each have our own website at samanthabeach.work and also on Instagram at samanthabeachk. And the book's also sold in a lot of independent bookstores, which we always encourage you to find. Yeah, I'm at nancylbeach.com and on Facebook. I don't do Instagram except to stalk my daughters. (laughs) um, Yeah. Well, listen, you two, it's so great to have you on Typology. And Nancy, it's great to reconnect with you. It's just a delight after all these years. Best wishes on this book and all the things that you're doing. And Typology, friends... May you have love, may you have joy, may you have peace, may you have healing, and may you have rest. Until the next time. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.